this is Marie Lipman and our Porno's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russia and Eurasia related topics. Our topic today is public perceptions. How do Russian people react to the COVID-19 pandemic and the government performance? In early spring, the COVID-19 pandemic abruptly upset Putin's plans. He was forced to postpone the events that were to have reinforced his legitimacy. One was the vote on the constitutional amendments, the other the celebrations of the 75th anniversary of the victory over Nazi Germany that included a military parade and the nationwide immortal regiment public march commemorating the fallen soldiers. Putin then withdrew into self-isolation and endowed with additional authority needed to cope with the COVID, his newly appointed Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, Moscow Mayor Sergei Sabanin, as well as regional governors. Nobody knew just how bad the situation with the epidemic would be. In Russia, as in many other countries, confusion and uncertainty set in. Putin loves uncertainty, but only when it is of his own creation, so that he'd be the only one to know what is in store. But this time, the uncertainty was imposed on him by the COVID, and in those early stages, Putin lost his habitual image of the ultimate decision-maker and problem-solver. Gradually, however, it turned out that the situation was not catastrophic. Bad outbreaks were mostly limited to a few relatively small locations. Russian doctors suffered from acute shortages of personal protective equipment and have been hit very badly. The death toll among medics has been very high. Still, Russia at large did not become the scene of overwhelmed hospitals and shortages of long ventilators. The COVID fatality rate may be higher than officially reported, but it is still not super high by world standards. The coronavirus epidemic itself does not seem to bother the Russian people too much. According to Levada Center, two-thirds of the Russian population approve the operation of both federal and regional authorities as applies to the coronavirus epidemic. It is the economic fallout of the epidemic and quarantine measures that will define public sentiments for months ahead, Livader's Denis Volkov wrote recently. Pollsters have registered growing disappointment and Putin's approval and trust ratings have declined. In June, apparently in order to break this negative trend, the government has opted for abrupt lifting of the quarantine measures. By now, both the victory parade and the vote for the constitutional amendments had been rescheduled, the parade for June 24, and the vote will be organized during the whole week after that. These are risky moves that might lead to a new rise of infections, but further extending the self-isolation measures could have backfired. People were getting sick of restrictions and increasingly violated them. And feeling free instead of locked down and celebrating the victory over Nazi Germany back 75 years ago and over the coronavirus now are expected to generate an appropriate mood for the vote that is to endorse Putin's lifetime presidency. The annual victory parade has been traditionally a major TV event of the year, invariably attracting a very large TV audience. And there is a good reason to believe that this will also be the case this year, even if the parade has been moved to a later date. As for the constitutional amendments, the vote is a travesty of popular will. The ballot will include just one question, do you approve the constitutional changes? Meanwhile, the actual number of changes is over 200. Since no independent observers will be admitted, reporting a desired result should not be a problem. Last week, Putin already said that the newly introduced constitutional provisions are supported by an absolute majority of Russian citizens. 
But while it can be expected to relieve people's concerns about imminent economic decline, and however invigorating the effect of the military parade may be, it is unlikely to change the generally negative public sentiment. What does it presage for Russia? We will talk about it with my guests, sociological scholars and long-term observers of the Russian society. Ella Puniyah. Hello, Ella. Hello. And Sam Green, director of the Russia Institute of King's College London. Hello, Sam. Hi. My first question has to do with a recently published study of public sentiments by a group headed by Sergei Bilanovsky. Based on their survey, they forecast socioeconomic turmoil and mass protests. Many observers disagreed with Bilanovsky's analysis. For instance, Kirill Rogov wrote that the Kremlin's tactic worked. People had been getting sick and tired of the lockdown, and now they feel relieved. Whatever the discontent, for now, Rogov pointed out, the situation is beneficial for the Kremlin, and there is no anti-Putin consolidation. So my first question to you is, what do you make of Bilanovsky's report, and what's your general sense of public sentiment at this point? Ella, would you please start? Well, Belanovsky team obviously brought on themselves lots of questions about their methodology because it's actually experimental and questionable. Their sample is not representative and they interviewed volunteers and they used internet forums for polling people, which is quite an unorthodox way to deal with public opinion issues. But What's good in this research is that you actually can hear voices of people who are asked to predefine their political affiliation. They ask people to tell them who they are politically, and then they interview them. So not being representative, these interviews probably still show important shifts in public opinion. And my educated guess would be that they are right when they say that people loyal to Putin move away from loyalty. And I guess another important thing they noticed is that social conservatives, who were part of sort of loyalistic Putin's core, pro-Putin core, changed their sentiments. They're not happy with the politics that Kremlin demonstrates probably from the beginning of this year. So this is, well, we don't know the share yet, but this is an important part of Putin's electorate. And typically, their fear and hatred to social change and to political pluralism held them as part of Putin's core electorate. But now, what I can see from what sort of ideological leaders of this group say, they don't feel the current regime serves their ideological purposes. And there are, of course, other people who used to be apolitical, who were not full-hearted Putin's supporters, probably, but who would not be against the status quo. And they changed their mind quite rapidly. You can see it in uh, traditional, methodologically typical opinion polls. You can see it on the internet and whatever. Many of them are frustrated by economic crisis, by government's policy during the epidemic, 
and less so, but still with the political change itself, with this attempt to change the constitution and to make people vote in the midst of the epidemic and to put significant economic resources into it at the time of a serious economic crisis. Okay, so Sam, what would you add to that? I think that nobody would argue that discontent is growing. But what do you make of not just Blanovsky's team survey, but also Kirill Rogov's statement that there is no anti-Putin consolidation? Well, I think both are probably true, and I certainly wouldn't disagree with anything that Ella just said. I think that she hit a number of very important nails pretty squarely on the head. I mean, I think that we do have to be careful when talking about Belanovsky's research, and that really what's important there is not the survey. They didn't publish, in fact, or at least I haven't seen the numerical data from the survey. What they focused on is the discussions and the sentiments and, and some of the more discursive aspects of it. And that does point to the kinds of things that Ella's just been talking about. So I think there's a couple of things going on. Right. Certainly, we seem to have moved past the Crimea syndrome to a certain extent. Again, you mentioned Kirill Rogov, something that he wrote about and described, in which there was an emotional coming together of people in Russia around a sense of connection to the political community and to Vladimir Putin as a symbol of that political community in a way that allowed Putin's support to be divorced from what was going on in the economy and what was going on in people's material lives. That period began to come to an end quite some time ago, back in the summer of 2018, as economic difficulties for people wore on, and we had pension reform, and we had other things going on, but also the elections as a part of the political cycle. But that sort of reversion to the mean does seem to be part of the story. Another part of the story, I, I think, is that we need to be careful when we talk about the idea of sort of pro-Putin conservatives, because I think there's really two groups of people here when it comes to voters, not opinion leaders and sort of people in the elite, but when we're talking about voters, right? One uh, are people who are genuinely ideologically committed to a conservative agenda, for whom the values agenda in particular is emotionally important, is ideologically and politically important, and they would have voted that way in the 90s, and they will vote that way regardless of who's in power. But there is also a large portion of the electorate who have accepted these ideas, who have taken on board a conservative ideology and conservative messaging in large part because that seems to be the norm, right? I, I don't want to say it's a conformist ideology, but it is uh, a position that allows people to reduce social friction and to be in step with what they perceive to be the broader consensus. And if they begin to see that consensus fray or disperse to a certain extent, then we can expect to see some portion of people who were initially mobilized by these wedge issues and this conservative ideological agenda in the aftermath of 2011-2012, we can expect to see some of those people drift slowly away from Putin. So I do think that is happening. Where I think Kirill is absolutely right, though, is that that is not the same thing as saying that there is a shift to some kind of an alternative. And really, that's kind of the magic of this constitutional vote. We can't call it a referendum, right? in that they're not putting people in a position of choosing between Putin and some kind of an alternative, right? They're putting people in a position of choosing between Putin for the foreseeable future until 2036 and uncertainty, right? And something that is not defined. And as a result, there really isn't an opportunity for people to consolidate around something else. Okay. Well, let's move for a short while to the developments of today. And after the political developments, the amendments to the Constitution and the pandemic that is not yet over, by far not over, 
Now, it seems that there is a new development, and that is the abruptly lifted restrictions. Some places, they have been lifted more abruptly than in other places, certainly very abruptly in Moscow. And this in itself, arguably, has an effect on the public sentiment. So this normalization, or quote-unquote normalization, can it be in itself a challenge? Ella, what do you think? I'm not sure. I would expect people to bring their frustration to the polls. The relatively risk-free way to express whatever frustration they have is right ahead of them. And I guess many of them will use it. I mean, going to the polls and voting against this quasi-constitutional change. Another thing is how the voices are going to be counted. But I don't see the lifting of restriction reducing this frustration significantly. People face economical difficulties. And if people who were COVID deniers got some kind of approval for their view, the government acted as if they were right, as if these were all false concerns from the very beginning. Maybe it makes them happy, but it doesn't make them happy with the government that actually started the restriction. People who are pro-quarantine, they became less worried in the sort of late weeks of the quarantine. But now they face all the economic circumstances of this crisis. And they also lose the reason to stay home if they want to. Because wherever they work, their superiors probably now would request them to come to work, whether they are at risk or not. So there are many other reasons for people to be unhappy with the government, even if they're happy with the lifted restriction. I see. Well, some people definitely were getting tired of restrictions. And in fact, the restrictions have never been imposed in a very forceful manner in Russia. Still, many people violated them. If we look at the Russian society in general, would you describe the Russian people at large as obedient? One often hears that the quarantine measures that were introduced in South Korea or China would have been impossible to implement in Russia. So obedient or not? And if not obedient, then how would you describe that? I think obedience is probably the wrong term. I mean, Russia, for all its, you know, vaunted authoritarianism is not a police state and doesn't have the wherewithal that, say, China has to enforce a lockdown on that scale. The issue is really, I think, one of people's faith and belief and understanding of why policy decisions are being made. And I think that this exercise with the lockdown and the response to COVID-19 in general has really been a tragic but an interesting window into how various sort of groups of Russian citizens relate not only to the state, but to one another, right? So Ella was just mentioning COVID deniers, right? They exist in Russia as they do in a lot of different places, right? There were certainly some people who would not have been observing the lockdowns because they didn't believe that it was justified, that it was the right thing for the government to do. They will, of course, now have the opportunity to point towards government hypocrisy, right? First, you cause all this damage, and now you lift it. Clearly, you didn't take it seriously to begin with. But the reality, I think, in Russia, as in many other places, is that most people who were not observing the lockdown were not observing the lockdown because they didn't have the wherewithal to observe the lockdown, right? Because they needed to go out and, and work. They worked in either informal 
informal sectors or in cash-oriented or human-oriented sectors where it just wasn't feasible for them to, to survive on lockdown. And we've seen very similar dynamics here in the UK or in the US or in other places, particularly where welfare states haven't stepped in to provide people with the level of support right, that the South Korean or the Chinese government did for people who were locked down under much harsher restrictions. Right. So this has opened up, I think, a clearer view for people of the actual material relationship that they have with the state, and certainly for us as researchers, of how far that relationship stretches, which turns out to be not very far at all. But also, I think it's opened a window into the relationship that people have with one another in a way that I think will probably have been very jarring for many people, again, not just in Russia. It's true, certainly here in the UK. But the extent to which we depend not just on our governments to keep us safe and to keep us healthy, but to which we depend on other people to behave in ways that keep us all safe, right? To maintain that two meter distance on the street or to wear masks or to observe proper hygiene and that sort of thing, right? So that as people now having been given permission to reemerge, as people do reemerge into public spaces, they will be looking, uh, I think, very closely at one another to see whether or not this is indeed safe in a way that really, I think, is going to be new for a lot of people who are used to a much more self-reliant and to an extent a much more atomized kind of existence. Right. I mean, you didn't like the word obedient, and you're probably right, but I would still ask both of you to focus on the state-society relations, even though, of course, what you said about people's relations with each other at this point are very important. Sam, in one of your articles, you describe these relations in a fairly succinct and, I think, very interesting way. What you wrote, and I quote here, is that these relations demonstrate preparedness by the people to see the state as simultaneously dysfunctional and yet legitimate, just and yet worthy. Can you elaborate on that? And I think it has a bearing on what people expect of their government in Russia these days. Um I mean, to a certain extent, you know, when I wrote that, I think I was probably talking about something a little bit broader, which is the fact that despite all of the glaring dysfunctions and failures of the Russian state, as again, you know, with many states around the world these days, particularly in the face of COVID-19, people are willing to let that slide, right? They're willing to continue to provide some degree of support, again, through a largely emotional attachment, because the state is important and, and symbolically important in structuring the political community of which people are a part. But that is made possible by a couple of things. It's made possible by the ability of people to rely uh, on their own resources, first and foremost, right, to have their own coping mechanisms that allow them them to prosper and to feel secure, at least to a degree, even when the state isn't providing those things for them, right? And that obviously is seriously constricted, both, frankly, by you know six years of declining real disposable incomes, but also by just the depth of dislocation that something like a pandemic causes, right? So if the economy is locked down, if people are locked into their houses, right, the, the ability to have an individualized coping mechanism is reduced. But it's also, I think, uh, underpinned by this sense of shared legitimacy, right? So people look around to each other to understand what the relationship is that they want to have to the Russian state, right? So this symbolic and this emotional attachment to the Russian state is a way of mediating a relationship with other citizens. You know, in a way that this gets back to your question about obedience, what you fear in a situation like that is not that you're going to be punished by the state, but that you're not going to be accepted and understood by your fellow citizens. And for that to work as a mechanism of enforcing obedience, right, there really does have to be consensus. And so what we seem to be seeing is a lot of different factors, both the economy and 
politics and this constitutional non-referendum and the pandemic and everything else coming together to undermine that sense of consensus. And I do think that is one thing that certainly the Bilanovsky study picks up on. Right. Elor, what would you add to that? What do you think people today expect from the government and from each other? And if they don't get what they expect, are they willing, as Sam said, to let it slide? Or are they getting angrier? And what this might lead to? I agree with practically everything Sam says. One impression I have is that people found the government way more dysfunctional than they expected it to be. Not that people thought that our government is highly potent, but they didn't expect it to be that restricted in what it can do, that slow, then that unprepared to a critical situation. Our government presents itself as well fit for critical situations. And that was the claim making people to forgive other flows. But what became very obvious is that it's not that they don't want to be serious about the epidemic, for example. It's not that they don't want to help people economically, but they just can't. They cannot do it quickly. They cannot do it properly. They cannot distribute resources beside the very restricted system of resource distribution to people dependent on government all the time. You can give money to people who receive pensions because they already receive money from the state. They found it way harder to give money to families with children because not all the families with children had been help recipients already by the time that they got this opportunity to apply for it. And when it comes for people who became unemployed and for everybody else, the help wouldn't reach them because the government is dysfunctional. It was obvious. Of course, some people would think that it's all about Putin doesn't want to spend money on people because he wants to spend this money on his friends or on the voting. But even where it was obvious that the government tries to produce some help, it was slow, targeted. And it sort of made very clear how little the government actually can do. The problems in the medical sphere were very significant. The dysfunctionality of the whole huge state-owned healthcare system became obvious. And I guess this was a surprise. And many people have strong feelings about it. Also in Moscow and some big cities, the measures to restrict movement of people had been taken in a way that frustrated even those who would support these actions in general. So this is probably the biggest surprise. As a researcher of Russian state for many years, I would say I have this feeling too. I expected the government to be less informed about what's going on than it is, but probably a bit more functional than it sort of demonstrated. Sam, would you agree that this should come as a surprise to a significant number of Russians that the government should be dysfunctional? I would remind the number from the recent Levada Center poll, which said that two-thirds of the Russian population approved the operation of both federal and regional authorities as applies to the coronavirus epidemic. 
Of course, well, maybe the one third, it is the remaining one third that feels very angry. But do you think this comes as a surprise? Do you think people expect their government to be more efficient and they are disappointed now? Well, I think there's a couple of things again going on. One is that in reality, Russia's experience with the pandemic has at least so far not been as bad as it could have been, particularly mortality rates, you know, are by global standards, not bad at all, given the infection rate. And so there is some credit to be claimed. In fact, the healthcare system, particularly in Moscow, obviously, has worked very hard and done reasonably well. Obviously, the situation gets worse the further you get away from Moscow and other major cities. But I think what's jarring for people is not so much the idea that the state turned out not to be able to do more, particularly in terms of lessening the economic burden, but that the state decided not to do more, right? So after years and really decades of rhetoric about building up the sovereign wealth funds and having the public welfare fund stashed away for a rainy day, well, you're not going to find a day any rainier than this. And yet there seems to have been a clear decision that they were not going to open up the purse strings, that this was not going to be seen as an opportunity to take that very strong fiscal position that the Russian state has accumulated over the years and use that to directly support the economy and people who were suffering from uh, loss of income. And I think it's one thing when the state tries to do something and fails. And that certainly happened. And that's a large part of what Ella was describing. But it's another when the state says, look, we're here to help you. We will be able to help you. But we don't really think you need help right now. Right. Or in fact, just doesn't seem to recognize the depth of the problem, particularly when, you know, you read about other countries around the world, the United States, places in Europe, the UK, where they're literally handing out money just pretty much to everybody. Right. To see your state have the resources to do that and decide not to do that after having talked for years about how they would be there to help in a situation like this. And then they don't help. I think that's something different than just surprise at dysfunction. I think that that can lead to a much more fundamental disappointment. And as a result, in part, you know, we've seen, I think, a growing number of people even question whether or not there's any money in those sovereign wealth funds to begin with, right? I don't believe that. I mean, I think it's hard to fake that amount of cash on the national accounts, but it's a fairly common opinion to find these days on social media and other places that, you know, the reason they're not spending the money is because they've already spent it on Putin's friends. Indeed, what day can be rainier than today? And this seems like a sober assessment. However, it doesn't seem like the government looks at it this way. Natalia Zubarevich, Russia's prominent economic expert, said recently that the federal government certainly has the money, but it is spending it in a stingy and slow fashion, and its operation is anything but generous. According to her, the Kremlin keeps an eye on the regions, but its assistance is selective, and it will grant additional funds to those regions that find themselves in truly bad shape so as to reduce the political fallout. So the question is, and uh, this is almost my last question to you, whether this policy is unwise and whether the Kremlin puts itself at risk by acting in this fashion. I think what Sam, you just said is very important. People expect the government to be more generous, if not more efficient, at least more generous. So do you think that the government is really running serious risks right now? And if so, where do you see this risk to come from? And of course, this is a question to both of you, maybe Sam, would you please start? Sure. I mean, 
I think that the Kremlin's risk analysis seems to be running on a bit of inertia, which is the idea that there isn't a systemic problem, but there is the potential for localized problems, right? And so you get this factor that Natalia Zubarevich was talking about of not necessarily trying to reduce the overall level of pain across the country, but to make sure that the pain is reasonably evenly distributed, so that you don't get pockets of deprivation that are much worse than other places and could create a sense of injustice, which could lead to mobilization and political difficulty, right? And that has worked for the Kremlin as an approach really for quite some time, but that may not be what they need right now, right? So if in fact the distribution of pain is so deep, right, that it is causing people to question whether or not in fact Putin is the answer for the next you know, 16 years of Russian politics, then you know, this kind of localized firefighting might not be the best solution. Okay, Ella, what do you think? So is this policy that the Kremlin is now pursuing unwise, and is it working against the Kremlin's own interests? Well, I think they don't have other options. They might have funds, but they don't have government apparatus that can efficiently distribute it. They don't have officials who can take responsibility and head the relief actions. They don't have an option to stop criminal justice system from prosecuting state employees on the charges of corruption or spending money in the wrong way or somehow else breaking very, very strict restrictions that the government puts on itself, on its own branches. So they can act, like Sam said, in some localities where the problem is going to be really serious, really bigger than elsewhere. But that's sort of the only option they can have. They cannot do it otherwise. They cannot engage in more complex, more complicated, more smart ways of action because they have no way to quickly redistribute responsibility. Shifting responsibility on government was, to my view, a very wise decision, probably the only wise decision so far, but we can see how little responsibility those governors actually were able to take after being handed it, how many resources they have, and so on. From what I've heard from both of you, it seems like the government is more of its own risk to itself, its own threat, if you like, then it is threatened by the societal forces. Would you agree with that, Sam? Yes, but I think that's always been the case. I mean, I think that the reality is that what will cause this system of power to end when eventually it does, unless it's natural causes, right, is if people come to the conclusion that even the uncertainty of a post-Putin future is better than the certainty of X number of more years of continuing the status quo. And that evaluation depends first and foremost not on things happening in society, but on how government and the system responds, whether it meets the expectations that people have. Those expectations are, as we've discussed, already low and fragmented, but it's really up to the Kremlin and the government to decide whether or not it's going to give itself the resources to keep people on board. Elder, so are you also of the opinion that it is not so much things happening in the society, but the government ill performance itself that eventually threatens it, at least at this point? At this point, yes, but this reduces government's legitimacy, of course. 
And with the reduction of legitimacy, we might expect first increase in violence on the side of the government because they run out of every other option. And I don't know what to expect of people in this situation. Maybe we are going to see a harsher political regime, or maybe we can see a radicalization. Okay. Well, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ella. Thank you. Thank you.